Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Over the years, I've been fortunate to have coaches from all aspects of what we do on and off the field. And this episode, at the time, my teammate, Dr. Joe Eisenman, and Brett Bartholomew, who wrote a book called Conscious Coaching, we got together and talked about different aspects of buy-in, as well as some specifics on strength and conditioning and things that coaches can do better. I know there's a ton of takeaways for any coach in this one, so enjoy this episode back from our archives in year one, and continue to tune in to the Coaching Coordinator Podcast as we have some new episodes coming up here early in 2022. Our guest today is Brett Bartholomew. Brett Bartholomew is a strength and conditioning coach, author, consultant, and founder of Performance Coaching and Consulting Company, the Bridge Human Performance in Atlanta. His experiences include working with collegiate teams, professional teams, member of the United States Special Forces, professional fighters within the UFC and boxing, as well as several Fortune 500 businesses. He's worked with Super Bowl athletes, Olympians, is a sought-out speaker across the country and across the globe. We're also joined by our own Joe Eisenman. Coach Bartholomew, it's great to have you here on the Coaching Coordinator Show. Thanks for having me, Keith. Appreciate it. Looking forward to the discussion. Joe, it's good to have you as well. Um, We're going to get into some things here, both on the strength and conditioning side, but the first thing I'd like to talk about is is your book that uh, you've recently released called Conscious Coaching. Tell us a little bit uh, about what you're doing currently in in your business with uh, the Bridge Humor Performance in Atlanta, as well as what you've done with Conscious Coaching. Yeah, so with the book, um, the goal, you know, during my time as a strength and conditioning coach, a lot of the study, at least the primary study, is always on the physiology of the human body, everything surrounding human performance, whether that's the most optimal way to increase strength, power, speed, all those aspects, as well as change of direction, agility, and everything there. Um, oftentimes what's missing, what was missing in that field, though, was a book that kind of talked about the finer aspects of communication and not just the art kind of as we – You know, as we know it, when you can read some books sometimes that just talk about the warm, fuzzy stuff of building relationships, but truly the science behind how to interact with folks that have different personalities, different backgrounds, how to deal with conflict, how to use these kinds of strategies in order to better manage an environment and a high-performance environment at that. So what I wanted to do is I wanted to write a book that was essentially something that could bridge the gap between the art and science and apply that to communication and coaching as well. 
So this book kind of discusses and, and it draws upon the expertise of myself as well as 15 other sports performance professionals from around the globe and nearly every sport as to how they interact with their athletes, how they manage their environment, how they solve problems, and all those pieces so that when they do write their programs, they can get the best results possible because they have enhanced buy-in from the athlete standpoint as well. In today's strength and conditioning world, you know, it used to be that the, the head coach kind of ran everything. And now even at the high school level, you start to see the high-performance coach or still some people calling it the strength coach, the strength and conditioning coach, um, being involved in a program. The college level where I was, Division three, we couldn't do those things. We had to rely on a, a strength and conditioning coach to run the program for us. And when you think about it, a lot is put on that guy to build your program. Um, and one of the things I, I saw you spend a lot of time on in your book is the idea of trust and building trust within the program. So what's your recommendation for the high school coach who's out there who has – uh, first of all, the scenario where he's the guy all off season long and he's needing to build a culture. And obviously the way you do that is to start to build trust within the culture. What are the recommendations that you have? Yeah. I think, you know, trust to me is about a roadmap. And in the book, I talk about having a coaching compass. So to build trust, that's not just something again, that you kind of imagine a Tony Robbins kind of warm, glowy feeling that you can just put an arm around a kid that may work for some, but some kids, especially those from kind of rough backgrounds and all other backgrounds, really, it's going to take time. It's going to take the knowledge of what goes into first impressions, what goes into those relationships. And most importantly, I think coaches don't focus on this enough, understanding their own, meaning the coach's own uh, communication style. I think a lot of times coaches look at athletes that maybe don't buy into what they're doing right away and assume that that athlete isn't committed or that athlete's soft or that athlete doesn't have what it takes. When in reality, oftentimes that coach just isn't talking in color enough to that athlete. And what I mean by that is they're not taking what the coach inherently knows and reframing it in a way that makes the most sense to the athlete and connects what matters to them. Because athletes aren't always going to be motivated by the same things that we are, especially not the same things that we are. They don't see the training, the practice, all the, all the scheduling aspect of it in the same way that we do. And some of that goes into a maturity standpoint. Some of that is their lack of education as to why we do the things that we do. But coaches need to better understand their own communication and management styles before they can ever hope to modify those towards athletes anywhere else. So a big part of the book talks about, you know, things that coaches can do to enhance that, to be a little bit more introspective, to consider certain things that go into the physiology of bias and heuristics and the things that might turn athletes off at first because no matter what any coach out there says, this generation of athletes today is not like the ones 20 years ago where you just told them to line up, do this, do that. We have to modify that. And I think anybody in a Fortune 500 company will tell you the same thing. You're not dealing with Toyota Camrys. You're dealing with human beings, all of which who have their own agenda, who have their own perceptions, who have their own values, and we have to meet them where they are if we want to get them in line. How do you reach those those tougher ones? For example, I, I, I can think of those situations where the kid's just really quiet or maybe he even acts, you think, in the way he's acting, he's trying to be defiant to you because he's not doesn't seem to be jumping on board with everything where some of those other guys are. What's your recommendation for dealing with that guy other than casting him off, which you know a, a lot of coaches, unfortunately, I think they they do that. They, they get a little bit frustrated and cast that guy off. So how do you deal with that guy? Sure. And it's important for me to preface that, you know, this is a large part of what the book goes into. So what I'm going to say is probably a snapshot. We give over 39 ways to deal with that guy 
um, in the book because just like teaching any aspect of sport or foundational technique, it's not going to be a one-size-fits-all method. You have to know why that guy is that way. Is there issues at home? Did he have a bad experience with a previous coach? You know, why is he in the sport in general? How does he enjoy uh, How does he enjoy or, or most effectively uh, find himself to be communicated with in general? Sometimes athletes, uh, you know, just connecting with them is going to take good old-fashioned patience. You know, being persistent, letting them know you're kind of you're there for them, you're willing to help. Sometimes, and, and this has happened with athletes that I've dealt with, especially at the NFL level, they need to kind of learn on their own and experience failure, taste their own blood, so to speak. That's a metaphor of of they've got to fail to really be willing to listen to what you have to say. I can't count the number of times that I worked with a guy within his first three years of his NFL career that his natural ability got him by with almost everything. And it wasn't until he had a bad season or a high rate of recurring injury or what have you that he was really ready to drop his pride and say, okay, what do I need to do? Maybe I was wrong before. Um, So we give strategies in the book. Some of them pertain to changing the format of your practice, changing the way you communicate certain aspects of your practice, of your training, of your routine, of your teaching. Uh, Others pertain to being a little bit hard-nosed because, again, despite what popular literature may suggest, you know, these guys aren't just going to respond to warm, fuzzy feelings. There's sometimes you got to be a bit more hard-nosed. That being said, there's a strategy behind that. It's not about just being this kind of cutthroat coach like you're either in or you're out. It's very much a chestnut checkers philosophy, Keith, and that's kind of what the book helps you navigate is how to tell which scenario is which and giving you opportunities to explore in all of those scenarios and all of those cases so you have a robust toolbox. Coach, and shifting gears here and taking a look at some of your other work, you know, the work you do in, in high performance, what have been some of the most useful things you've done recently that you think coaches need to, to pay attention to and, and take a look at as they're trying to get the most out of their, their uh, offseason, especially you know, this time of year we're looking at summer conditioning, preseason conditioning? From a training standpoint or just overall from a methodology standpoint? Uh, from a training standpoint. Yeah, from a training standpoint, and, uh, you know, I think universally, irrespective of the level that you're at, just continuing to harp on the fundamentals. You know, that being said, we do live in the social media age where athletes are influenced by sexy or fancy drills that they're going to see on certain people's pages or social media accounts. So I think taking the time to educate them, not only on why the foundational uh, pieces of their sport and their position are so important, but also as to you know, why some of these sexy things that they see aren't really relevant. You know, the number one thing that comes to mind, Keith, is I've seen this explosion and obsession with footwork training. I mean, I have pro athletes coming to me that just want to get on these ladders and do these high-paced, fast-paced, like, memorization drills. And I try to tell them, hey, guys, running fast is about covering ground, not tap dancing on it. If you watch anybody line up on the field of play, you're not going to see anybody just sit there and pitter-patter their feet 30 times. And you're also not going to see these elaborate dog-like obstacle courses where people have to navigate this environment. So helping them understand, you know, a little bit about the science and the reality of it, and then also showing them footage, you know, reminding them, hey, this is what we're preparing for. When you guys see these wide receivers line up, do you see any of them spend more than two to three seconds maybe shifting position or doing this before they explode off the line? No. So let's keep the goal the goal. So I do think that you have to educate today's athlete. You do have to acknowledge where their influencing factors come from. Because if you just try to say, hey, this is crap, this is nonsense, don't do it, and then you don't tell them why, you can't really expect them to buy it. Because all day they're flooded with this messaging from sports performance companies, from equipment companies, 
from social media superstars that this is what you need to do. This is the missing link to your game. So you've got to counter that with really sound fundamental education, or as Joe says, just knowledge translation and knowledge transfer transfer. And that that's the essence of the company I'm trying to build with the bridge. We're trying to bridge that gap and, you know, really help educate athletes of all levels as to why they should do uh, a certain particular kind of training rather than just trying to force feed it down their throat. Yeah, Joe and I talk about that all the time. Some of these these drills that to me it's a little bit comical where you see this pro athlete, you know, quick foot karaoke to the right, flip it and go to the left, go around oh. the cone, go around this cone, cut this way, cut that way, run a curl route, catch the ball, go upfield, dodge two cones. I mean, it's like show me where that happens in the game. And uh, uh, Joe and I have had a laugh or two over that. Feel free to to jump in here, Coach. Um, how do we combat that though? Other than saying, show me where it happens on film. I mean, because players get caught, just like you said, they get caught into seeing, you know, the new and shiny object, which they think, oh, I got to go do that, you know. And, I, and then it's funny, you'll see these videos with, you know, someone will get their five-year-old out there and teach them the footwork pattern, and they're doing it too, and put their video up as this is the next, you know, phenom. So uh, we're battling a lot out there, that's for sure. Yeah, I mean, it's twofold. One just goes into the education, and I always go nuts when coaches are like, I don't have time to educate. Full. You know, whenever you line up and you're getting ready for a drill, you explain the drill, you explain how it pertains to something they care about, whether that's speed, change of direction, great detail mechanics, what have you, and you get after it. And then afterwards, you do a quick debrief, and you remind them, hey, guys, when we take this angle, you understand how that applies for when you catch the pass and you're trying to change direction and accelerate upfield towards the first down marker. You've got to paint these images in their mind's eye, you know, to a degree, no matter how any coach wants to look at it, it is selling them, you know, it is selling them. And, and it's not selling in the negative connotation of the word. You're just trying to help them, you know, reframe and imagine why this, why this matters to them. The other piece is no matter how ingrained you are in the importance of fundamentals, uh, which is critical and you've got to be, you can still add some fun to the equation. You know, varying your athletes like these drills for a reason. So rather than just saying, oh, that's crap, that's crap, which is certainly something I used to do, I try to ask them, I go, hey, what do you like about these things? Oh, coach, it makes me feel this way. Oh, coach, it helps me focus like this. Oh, coach, you know, it's a new challenge. So I take that information, and then I integrate them in great foundational drills. And so if they like this challenge, they like the complexity, what I'll do is I'll say, okay, guys, instead of going off of an auditory stimulus, me saying go right, left, what have you, we're going to mix in some kind of tactical or visual stimulus or the opposite, you know, or we're going to increase kind of contextual interference, pump in some different noise, uh, make sure that they start out of a a suboptimal position, whether that's a lateral half kneel, uh, a a tall kneel sitting on their or laying on their back. So they have to spin up and change a partner, make things more reactive. There's so many ways you can even make the most mundane foundational drill more engaging without selling your soul. And that's something that, you know, I really try to harp on my guys when I teach them change of direction or agility, and they've responded to really favorably. I'm going to kick it over to Coach Eisenman here. Yeah, go ahead, Coach. Yeah, so I had the great opportunity to watch Brett in action at a at a recent clinic in Noblesville, Indiana. And one thing I was really impressed upon was, you know, his ability to really focus on these fundamental movements and. And Brett, maybe just as a real concrete example for some of the high school coaches out there, let's take lateral shuffle. So when you were in Noblesville, you took, uh, you know, a few of the attendees through this lateral shuffle progression. So maybe just walk us through, 
you know, how you would teach a lateral shuffle progression. And then, you know, at the end, kind of hitting upon some of the things that you just spoke upon in terms of adding in some auditory or visual cues to that to advance the drill. Yeah, absolutely, and that's a great point. So when I look at a drill, and in this case, as Joe alluded to, a lateral shuffle, the big thing that we're focusing on is teaching them the foundational mechanics of change of direction, right? What goes into a cut, how we manipulate that plane of movement. So the first thing I tell them is, hey, guys, regardless of where you're at on the field, we need to maintain a low center of gravity, and we need to be able to shift position. If you're not able to do these two things, you're going to end up on your butt. You're not going to be in the position to explode or burst and fulfill your assignment. So this is what we're going to focus on. And I start thinking of three P's, posture, position, and power. So first P, right, when we think of posture, I start to explain how I want their body position lined up, right? So, hey, guys, I want a good low center of gravity. Act as if we're underneath a tunnel, knees slightly bent, getting them in that kind of position, right? That goes into the position, right? Now, where, aside from my upper body posture and all these things, what what position do I need to be in if I'm going left, if I'm going right, if I'm getting ready to drop back? And I'll show them some examples. And then finally, power, I'll teach them how to apply force most directly either to allow them to go to the right, the left, or drop back. So what we do is we'd start real simple. We'd either use uh, partner resistance on the hip or we'd use a bungee, right? And on a simple verbal command, it could be go, it could be a whistle, it could be a clap, it could be anything. They're simply going to take it nice and slow, pushing off of the outside leg relative to where they're moving to produce force into that ground while maintaining great posture. After that, as Joe alluded to, after we've gone right and left, we'll start to double it up and I'll add a little bit of complexity. So now I may say, okay, guys, on one go, on one clap, or if I say X word, now you're going to do that two times. So I want it twice as quick while maintaining that position. Eventually where it's going to look at where it's going to go is a reactive type drill. That could be a rabbit chaser drill, a partner chaser drill. That could be me replacing right or left with different color words or auditory responses. For example, a clap might insinuate you guys need to move to the left. A blow of the whistle might need to insinuate you go to the right. So now all of a sudden what was once a very familiar and easy and vanilla drill for them, they have to utilize a bit of recall, no different than they would have to do on the field of play. And you'd be surprised at how many mistakes even the most prized and proficient mover makes when you just change that little bit of a drill. Clap means right, whistle means left. Okay, now switch that up. There's a lot of there's a lot of mental reframing and patterning. Now, one example I'll do with youth football, since that's the nature of some of what we're talking about too, um, but I'll do this for my NFL guys alike, is once they know how to shuffle, change direction, transition, and they've shown this clearly under a variety of domains, I'll have them put a jersey, a towel, or maybe even their own shirt in their shorts, and I'll start to create now a little bit of an arena. So imagine cones uh, that block off anywhere from 10, 15, 20 yards, and I say simply, okay, guys, there's 10 of you, 15, however many. What you've got to do is you guys have got to pull that jersey, that shirt, or what have you out of your opponent's shorts. And so all of a sudden, it's a last man standing kind of game. You have 15, 20 different athletes shuffling, reacting, changing direction, reaching for this. You kind of create this chaos that is a little bit more competitive in nature while still teaching them to keep a good athletic base, low center of gravity so they can get to that flag or that jersey and then move onward. If you're not into games, you can simply say, okay, guys, now what you're going to do is you're going to face me on the whistle. You're going to shuffle 10 yards to the left, 10 yards to the right, cross over and accelerate out into a decel. So there's so many pieces that you can go from 
uh, a postural to a pre-programmed to a random chaos or competition type flow within what you're doing to keep them engaged and learning for three, six, nine, 12 weeks and beyond. There's so many ways you can vary even the simple foundational drills such as a shuffle. Was that specific enough for you, Joe? Yeah, that's excellent. That's, that's exactly, uh, you know, some main points I wanted you to, to touch upon. And, you know, Keith, one thing that we talked about in a previous podcast is, you know, where high school football coaches can go for this sort of material. And I just want to bring up an upcoming event that Brett's going to be part of, and that's our partnership with the National Strength and Conditioning Association. And Brett's going to be one of our subject matter experts, and he's going to be teaching our course on agility. So high school football coaches can look forward to that 2018. I have a, a follow-up to, to uh, your question there. Uh, Brett, a, a lot of what I see, um, which will start, you know, with w- within about a month here, end of, end of uh, mid to end of July, you know, uh, the youth football programs will start working their guys out, and they have to go through. Oh, I don't know. I think they usually make them at, do at least a week of acclimation where they don't get into putting anything on. These guys show up, do all kinds of drills. Um, at least in the community that I've been a part of, and. and and watching these, they've been the pre-programmed shuffle this way. When you hit the cone, turn this way. And not getting into maybe that random and, and chaos, which is a lot more like football, you know. How do you? How do those guys go about balancing those things out? What percentage of some of those pre-programmed drills should they work versus the ones that are, you know, progress all the way up to, you know, like you mentioned there, the random and chaos type of drills? Yeah, that's a great question, Keith. Unfortunately, there's not going to be one universal for everybody. And that's the dangerous thing is a lot of coaches want that universal. They want to say, hey, you know, a coach said that 50% should be X, Y, or Z, and the rest of the practice should be this. The danger with that is we know is athletes all progress at their own pace, and they all come in with their own kind of training age, so to speak, which describes how much experience they've had in that kind of environment. So, you know, I've had successful programs where I spend, you know, 50% pre-programmed, 50% chaotic. Um, or as little as, you know, 15% pre-programmed and 85% chaos. It just depends on the night nature of athletes that I have. And when I coach, you know, upwards of six to eight groups a day, all those formulas are always going to look a bit different. But to your point exactly, coaches have gotten a bit lazy. They've gotten these drill books, right, that have been passed down over decades, and, and they're not useless. They're just not building off of them. So I think they have to say, okay, what are some key performance indicators here? Aside from when my kids can just cut and decelerate and turn and perform this cone drill cleanly, what can I do to make it a little bit more reactive? And for coaches that are intimidated by that, because let's be honest, for some coaches thinking about that stuff, they may not be classically trained in this. You know, my master's degree is in motor learning, and I'm really grateful that that carried over into a lot of the stuff that I do with athletes. It's what I wrote research on. I looked at uh, certain verbal cueing responses on agility drills with Division One tennis athletes. Um, but if you wanted to just take something and you're saying, hey, I'm a little nervous, I don't know how to progress this, do your pre-programmed cone drill, but start with some kind of visual or auditory random response. So, for example, I might say, guys, you did a great job on the four-cone weave drill. Now, we're going to change this up a little bit. You are only going to go when the math problem that I give you, the answer is an odd number, such as one, three, five, or seven. So now I get the athletes laying in a position. It could be a very familiar position, such as a base dance or a two-point start, or it could be one of the chaotic positions, as I mentioned earlier. And so you simply get the athletes lined up. It could be one at a time or any kind of format, and you start yelling out numbers, two plus two, three plus two. 
three times and you sit there and you wait for them to boom respond to the one that gives them that odd number. So using math problems, saying oh they go when the word you hear starts with E. You'd be surprised at how many people go when they hear the word tree because they're so anxious to move, even though tree doesn't start with an E, they hear the E sound and that plus their anxiety prompts a response. The same thing that works in, in sport. That's why people swing at curveballs. That's why people jump off sides. You're using that emotional energy as a part of the practice to create some chaos. So nobody's suggesting that these coaches have to go deep down the rabbit hole of creating those kinds of environments. Subtle, small changes can go such a long way in terms of getting these athletes going in the right direction and adding a little bit more random and chaos to a drill. Just so we're clear, because, again, um, I guess if, if we're talking about drills where that doesn't happen on the field, like we talked about it, uh, why is something like this applicable in, in uh, trying to get them to listen for E, for example, when really what we want them to be able to do on the field is to see a recognition key? Just talk about the bridge and how that one, one skill transitions into another. Absolutely. So when you look at reactive agility, which is kind of what that is, that reactive opponent, you're looking at stimulus response. Well, compared to just doing a cone drill that's pre-programmed, that you know there's a discernible beginning and end, and you always know what's required of you, such as sprint five, shuffle five, backpedal five, sprint five, that's not the reality on the field. The quarterback doesn't line up when you're actually competing. They may do so in some kind of scrimmage. If you watch your film and you recognize this, but a quarterback doesn't line up and say, Hey, linebacker, make sure you guys shuffle. Cause we're going to try to fill this gap. The running backs coming right after you. So just shuffle over a couple steps and then sprint through this hole. You'll make the tackle, right? The quarterback's going to pump fake. The line's going to shift. They're going to go off different commands, cues, starts, counts, all those things. So being able to add that random and chaotic component more act, uh, more efficiently transfers because that's just the nature of the true task. So um, another example is you can simply set up cones in a triangle. The defensive back can start out of a backpedal. You can tell them to sprint forward, and then you can have them backpedal again, react right, react left, all of these things. That is going to be more directly transferable to his coverage of a wide receiver because they're not going to know the routes these receivers go. So that's great if all these athletes do all these you know footwork drills and complexity but the bottom line, Keith, is that these guys have been told where to place your foot, where to shuffle, where to make your break, and where to cut, and that's it. And that won't be what happens in the field of play. So that's why they transfer is whenever you have to do that stimulus response, that reactive component, and introduce a little bit of cognition, which is the equivalent, sorry to use nerd terms here, of this cognitive amortization phase, right, this flat period between what did I see what did I do? No different than when somebody does a plyometric and they've hit the ground and then they're trying to express force. That's, that's what they're going to have to deal with. So we need to sharpen that side of the equation and introduce cognitive challenges into these in order for them to replicate the cognitive challenges they're going to face on the field of play. I learned that through boxing. I was a competitive boxer. Hitting a heavy bag may feel nice. I can do all these complex combos, but that doesn't really get me prepared to face the left hook of an opponent that's a little bit faster than I am. Uh, you know, we learn that pretty quick through a bloody nose. Sometimes a football player doesn't learn that quite as quick because they may be great in training, uh, but crap on the field. Pardon my language. You know, I think one another question I want to pose to you and really an implication thing here, again, as coaches go into summer conditioning, maybe just three really key items, either physiologically and or related to conscious coaching that you would give to the high school football coach 
during the summer conditioning period? You know, I, I think the first thing is you've got to get out of this kind of phase of, I think it's important that coaches don't just kind of play the copy and paste game, right? Because they hear some major division one school is doing this kind of conditioning. Uh, that That's what they need to do. And the classic example is the old style 300 yard shuttles or the 2110, all things that we know physiologically do not line up with enhanced sports performance in the domain of football. Um, I think they think that this is increasing mental toughness, which is a word that doesn't, you know, we all kind of uh, look at now and, and we, we know has been overused and kind of bastardized. But the reality is, is that's not where resilience comes from, you know, and they've got to make sure that they're using uh, methods and they're using work to rest protocols and they're using things that actually line up with putting these kids in a position to succeed there's always going to be that N equals one factor, right? So just because a certain school that's won national titles does something, that doesn't mean that you're going to do that something. A lot of these schools are really blessed with genetic anomalies. And we know that is far from the reality of the typical high school sample size. So these coaches really need to do their research and make sure that they're, they're reaching out to performance professionals or, or they're reading the literature, which I know can be intimidating for some, or at the very least investing in some kind of, a uh, simple textbook where somebody has done what you do so well, Joe, which is transfer kind of this high-level academic knowledge into tidbits that are usable and e- easily digestible. That's the biggest thing because you see too much uh, copycat, copy and paste. Well, they do this, and they've won conference titles and national titles. You've got to find what's right for you. So I'm going to touch on that and focus on that from a physiological standpoint. Also, from my time working at the University of Nebraska – and then also from, you know, being fortunate enough to work with guys like Jarvis Landry, Darius Hayward Bay, Jonathan Stewart, Don Terry Poe, Julius Peppers, these kinds of guys, Tyrod Taylor, Carlos Hyde, Shady McCoy. There are guys like that, those names may be recognized by some, that come in that still don't have the fundamentals done in the weight room. They still don't hinge appropriately. They still don't know how to squat. They think, oh, squatting hurts my knees, when in reality they were just so – they. They were paired with strength coaches both in, in high school or college that maybe didn't teach them the correct methods. And then these guys get bad perceptions of exercises that normally would be very beneficial to their performance. So you still just got to harp on good fundamentals and getting these guys ready for the next level. It's just like when you're getting ready to cook, you've got to make sure that you prepare the food in a way that all right, have we seasoned it? Have we trimmed it? Have we preheated that's the job of the high school strength and conditioning coach, not to bake some masterpiece or be a master chef. You need to just prepare them for the next level. The other thing is, is you work these kids hard, ingrain that work ethic in them for sure, but still remember it's important that they need to have fun, right? And again, that doesn't mean that they're goofing off, they're jacking around. That just means periodically you've got to learn how to read your crowd and know your audience and know when to inject a, a game here or there, or when to do something a little bit more competitive to soak that fire, and when to maybe just say, hey, guys, you know what? We're going to do a recovery workout today. You guys have been killing it for six weeks. We're going to the pool, and we're going to do dynamic warm-ups in the pool. We're going to do some activities there where we can still get some activity in, uh, but not necessarily beat you up. There's so many ways that you can keep kids engaged now. You've got to consider they still have four years of college ahead of them, ideally, and then they have you know, hopefully a career after that. If you burn them out in high school, you're not really doing your job as a prepper, uh, a physical, or in this case, a psychological preparation coach. So those are three things, two comprising physiological, one emotional and psychological that I think people should focus on a bit more. Yeah. I, you know, 
one quote that you always use is fundamentals, not fluff. And I love to just to keep coming back to that because, you know, in my time in high school, strength and conditioning programs, you know, we, we still have some pretty poor movers. They may be all conference. And as you've alluded to as well, you have, you've seen NFL guys or collegiate guys who they put up big numbers and they are all stars, but they have some flaws in their fundamentals. So you talked a lot about, you know, the reactive agility drills, which are a little bit more complex compared to our yep. typical planned cone drills, you know, run, shuffle, backpedal. However, those planned drills, they still have a purpose in terms of coaching the kids up on proper, you know, posture, as you said, deceleration mechanics and change of direction mechanics. So, you know, one point that I want to make is for the high school football coach, they need to coach these drills up, you know, whether they be planned agility drills, like uh, our planned change of direction drills, like the cone drills or the reactive drills, you know, and again, I watched you with this basically uh, flag pulling reactive agility drill where you put eight, 10 guys in this space and they have to execute certain movements and try to pull the flag from the other person. You still have to be coaching the movements during those reactive drills, but that progression from simple to complex, you know, it's really imperative that we maintain that progression and really focus on the fundamental movement patterns. No, yeah, 100%. And that's what I meant by all you've got to do is follow some progressions that, you know, by and large have a logical flow to them. You know, for me, that's, you know, making sure that the session layout and overall goal um, you know, focuses on the three P's, posture, positions, and, and power, meaning how do we transfer that force or execute that movement, you know, making sure that we have a progression and, you know, the percentage of time that you spend to each of these avenues is going to be dependent on, you know, the athletes that you have and where they're at skill set wise of saying, okay, our session here is going to have an element of postural drills, pre-programmed drills, random chaos or competitive drills, however you want to phrase it, earlier on in the training process, the majority of it should be skewed towards pre-programmed drills to make sure that you can get that transfer of saying, hey, guys, we're working on skill acquisition here. How do we transfer here? How do we break down this movement? Let's isolate these things, and then let's make sure that we integrate them into more complex drills down the road. Because if you don't do the simple thing savagely well, what's going to happen is you're going to get right to these testosterone-fueled competitive drills, and they're going to break down. They're going to break down because, you know, they're letting the moment become a monster in their head, and every single thing they do is getting washed out. So um, making sure that they actually do these kind of pre-programmed pieces, that they focus on skill acquisition before skill application is critical, 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 and something that's not nearly done well enough or often enough in, in many of these aspects. So I think, I think you're spot on. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Well, it's been a pleasure to have you on the coach and coordinator podcast as, you know, part of our high performance series. And as we close things out here, just maybe a reminder to the listeners where they can contact you. And then maybe just one last plug on, on a brilliant book and that's conscious coaching. No, I appreciate it. I, I'm most, the best way to contact me is through my website. It's BartholomewStrength.com. I know that can be a mouthful. So the second best way to contact me is actually through Twitter or Instagram. I try to make myself really accessible. Um, I didn't always have coaches that did that for me in the past. Um, and that's just at coach underscore Brett with two T's as, as in Tom, B as in boy, at coach underscore Brett B. 
Um, I'm probably most active on Instagram now just because so many coaches want these visuals. So if you scroll back uh, through my Instagram, you'll see everything from recommended books, drills I've done, beliefs that I have kind of point to my coaching philosophy. And then if you do want to dive more deeply, the book Conscious Coaching can be found on Amazon. Uh, you can Google Conscious Coaching and it should come right up. And then if you're in the Atlanta area, I'd love to connect and stop by the facility uh, the Bridge Human Performance will be open in September. So hopefully that gives people more than enough ways to kind of reach out and touch base. And I'm always happy to talk shop in any capacity. Coach Bartholomew, yeah. Uh, Thanks. yeah, thank you for uh, the time you spent with us here. And again, I, I would definitely recommend for any coach, not just a, a high performance or strength and conditioning coach, but really any coach here, there's something to learn about coaching. So I appreciate that you put that together. No, my pleasure. Thanks for having me, guys. 